The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. The fundamentals are there for inflation, I think, for a while. We don't necessarily need free money and zero interest rates forever. Washington at this point doesn't want to add regulation to Bitcoin. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. In my view, you can't spend enough on infrastructure. Given the size of fiscal stimulus we've already seen, this seems like a drop in the bucket. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe. Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano here with Rick Davis, and we are filling in for Joe Matthew today. We are awaiting right now comments from German Chancellor Merkel and President Joe Biden, who have been in a meeting in the White House, perhaps and most likely her last visit to Washington, D.C. as chancellor. She was uh, you know, she's been in that position since 2005, and she has dealt with four presidents. So we're going to take you to that live as soon as they begin. And as I mentioned, we are awaiting remarks from the chancellor and the president um, earlier today. Uh, the president made some remarks. He held a quick press greeting with Merkel, and he had some kind words to say about the enduring friendship that the chancellor, he said, has been so responsible for. One of the things that I want to talk about is the enduring friendship that the chancellor has been so responsible for nailing down and making sure it continues. And uh, we're ready to uh, dive in cooperation between the United States and Germany has been strong, and we hope to continue that, and I'm confident we will. And that was President Biden earlier today welcoming uh, Chancellor Merkel. As I mentioned, she's been in that position since 2005. She's worked with four U.S. presidents. Today is likely to be her last visit to the White House as chancellor. And while it is a celebratory moment, there's still policy and business to be done. And they are t supposedly, we're going to hear more when they make the remarks, but they have a lot to talk about, including climate change, the pandemic, security challenges, relations with Russia, China, the Nordstrom pipe stream, pipeline rather, and many other things. So joining us on the line to help, you know, get this meeting in perspective and make sense about what's coming up in the German-U.S. relations is Yasha Monk. He is associate professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Study, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also the author of The People Versus Democracy, why our freedom is in danger and how to save it. So, Professor Monk, it's so good to talk to you. I wanted to see if you could just walk us through sort of the historic nature of this visit, what we expect is Chancellor Merkel's last visit as chancellor to the United States. Well, I think in, in many ways what's historic about it is the valedictory nature of it. You know, I was born in Germany in 1982, a few months after a man called Helmut Kohl became chancellor of Germany. And he remained in office for 16 years. And I remember what it felt like as a teenager feeling that this phrase, Bundeskanzler Helmut Kohl, 
was really one word that the chancellor was always and would always be home at court. Uh, you know, as I was listening to your program a few minutes ago, um, I thought about the fact that Angela Merkel is now reaching uh, that record mark. Um, she has been in office for 16 years as well, with a whole generation of Germans who can't imagine Germany without her. And so the question is, uh, you know, how did that shape German-U.S. relations and how would it change uh, after Angela Merkel? I think there's a lot of concerns about that at the moment in the United States, but most likely um, her successors are, are going to um, continue in her footsteps in terms of their basic friendship with the United States um, and their basic unwillingness to confront China and to confront uh, authoritarian powers around the world. Um, so actually, I think there's going to be a lot of continuity in the good, but also in the a little less good um, in how Germany acts in the world. Professor, I mean, the, the continuity makes sense. I mean, new leaders, same party, uh, probably post-election, but uh, we've seen her play such an enormous role in Europe in, writ large. And is there a successor for European leadership? Uh, we've seen lately that uh, President Macron has delivered a few speeches to try and fill some of that gap. And, and she hasn't left much room to do that. She's been very active as an outgoing uh, prime minister and really the titular head of Europe. So what, how does that vacuum get filled? And what is the unique relationship between U.S. and Europe that, that will change uh, once she's left the stage? Well, I think one of the interesting things about Angela Merkel is that in part through being, you know, the head of government of, of the most powerful European state, and in part through her sheer endurance in office. She has played this incredibly important role, as you say, but it's not clear to me that her leadership has been very decisive. When you think of the key crises she has faced uh, over the course of her tenure, um, the Euro crisis, in which she sort of dithered for a long time, the rise of authoritarian populists that really threatened the basic uh, logic of governance in the European Union and countries like Poland and Hungary, where she for a long time she sort of protected them politically, um, even the uh, refugee crisis in 2015, in which uh, it was much a lack of action by Angela Merkel, uh, which led to the way in which it played out as a kind of principal decision as to what to do. Um, a lot of the time, uh, the Europe led by Angela Merkel was marked by a certain amount of indecision and, and lack of long-term vision. And I think... Um, uh, her successor is going to step into exactly those footsteps and most likely continue that. Um, so that means that Europe won't change all that much. And Professor, one thing we keep hearing about, um, as you know, is that there was a famously tense relationship between the chancellor and the previous American president, Donald Trump. And that seems to have normalized a bit, um, even though it's early under President Biden. How much do you think that is matters in terms of U.S.-German relations? And is there concern in Germany about the outcome of the next U.S. election and return to some of that tension? if that were to happen? Well, of course, uh, the, the predecessor of our current president um, has uh, had tense relations not only with Angela Merkel, but also with just about every other European uh, head of government and head of state. Um, I think Germany and the rest of Europe uh, is very relieved to see somebody like Joe Biden, who is a principal defender of the transatlantic relationship, uh, who is somebody who stands for the values of democracy, uh, win office. Um, uh, but I think you're right that there is concern in Europe about, uh, you know, who will succeed Joe Biden and whether we might get a return of either Donald Trump himself or one of his allies and what that would mean 
um, for uh, you know America's ability and willingness to play its traditional role as uh, leader of a free world. Now, if I was going to be a little bit cynical, I would add, uh, but perhaps that slightly also gives an excuse to European leaders um, to uh, not quite get on board with what I think are, are, are good and important foreign policy preferences of the current administration. So when you look at something like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, you know, European politicians can say, well, you know, is the United States really back? Should we really put uh, all of our cards on one bet? Um, you know, perhaps we will hedge our bets a little bit and allow something like Nord Stream 2 to go forward. Um, I think given uh, the way in which that would strengthen uh, the autocratic regime in, in, in Russia, um, uh, that would be a big mistake. Um, but it is a choice that most European leaders seem to be making, and it is a choice that so far Angela Merkel has made. Professor, I think it's a pretty good bet, picking up on your comments on uh, the Nord Stream 2, that that's a, that's a very important part of the conversation uh, going on during this visit between the two leaders. And I'm kind of curious uh, how you see this playing out, because obviously the U.S. Uh, position during Donald Trump's period was much different than Obama has taken, or uh, Biden has taken. But more importantly, uh, Angela Merkel has really been the one that has facilitated this deal. And, and, and there are many European leaders who have expressed concern about it, because once they've built that pipe and connected, we know that's you know not far along, uh, not far off, that um, how do you contain Russia's leverage at that point in time when they start you know, uh, doing things they've done before, which is cut off supplies to Ukraine and things like that? Um, the, 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 the Germans under Merkel have said that they will sanction Putin for malign actions, but how do you, how do you draw the picture of like, what justifies new sanctions and, and why is it that we don't think Putin's probably got the leg up now? Uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's the important question. And, uh, you know, I would love to uh, listen in to the conversation that uh, President Biden and Chancellor Merkel are having right now. I don't know how much they will talk about Nord Stream 2, because I think both of them really want this feeling, this meeting to, to be and feel harmonious, uh, to be constructive. And this is the main point on which they disagree, so they may end up avoiding the topic. Um, uh, it's interesting that Angela Merkel has tried to uh, offer this face-saving face -saving formulation that um, you know, we will make sure that the Russians don't abuse the pipeline and, uh, you know, will react if they do. It's not exactly clear the outline what that would actually entail. That sounds like something that's very easy to say in theory, but rather harder to do in practice. Um, but the U.S. administration has also sent signals in the last month that it continues uh, to oppose Nord Stream 2, but that's not going to push Germans and other European partners too hard on this. So I think they're both trying to sort of um, sweep this issue under the carpet uh, a little bit. Um, but it goes to a larger strategic choice that Germany and other European countries will have to make in the coming uh, years and decades. Um, you know, uh, on values, on uh, uh, important questions, they are aligned with the United States as represented by somebody like Joe Biden. Um, they think of themselves as part of a Western transatlantic uh, community upholding uh, democracy. But at the same time, uh, they have so far been very unwilling to jeopardize the trade links to Russia or to China, um, or to do anything that uh, actually helps to uh, contain the rise of those authoritarian powers. Uh, the question is whether this will, in the long run, be sustainable. Um, uh, perhaps Germany and other countries will actually uh, more closely cooperate with the United States in trying to contain that rise. I think the more likely outcome 
is that they will drift into a kind of de facto neutrality between the United States um, and countries like Russia and China. Um, and meetings like today's can sort of put a nice uh, piece of makeup on that. Um, but that is the, the fear that I have for how the transatlantic relationship might drift apart. And that is just fascinating. And, and I would love to be a fly on the wall to this meeting, too. And we should note that we're still awaiting comments from the chancellor and the president. And we'll bring those to you live as soon as they come. Um, Professor, you have such a background here, both personal and professional. If you were to guess, understanding you were in the room, in addition to the pipeline, whether they talked about that or not, as you just mentioned, what other key policy issues do you think were on the agenda today? Well, I imagine that uh, uh, they would have talked about climate change, uh, which is a priority uh, both to uh, uh, German politicians and to the current American administration. Um, I imagine that uh, they would have uh, addressed um, some questions around trade and taxation, including um, recent agreements to uh, ensure a minimum uh, taxation of multinational corporations uh, uh, around the world. Um, uh, and they will have talked about, you know, Russia and China. They will have talked a little bit about uh, perhaps recent events in, in Cuba and Haiti. Um, I imagine that it would have been a pretty wide-ranging conversation, not, not dominated by any one issue. And, and one thing I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, we had a report today um, in the last couple of days, of course, that Biden is going to keep the travel ban on Europe despite pleas to ease it. Do you think that's something that is going to be addressed in the meetings today? And how big of an issue is that in Europe and in Germany in particular? Um, I don't think that this is uh, an issue that really incites the passion of the average citizen in Europe. Uh, traveling to the United States um, uh, is, is, is not the same as traveling, say, to Italy or to Spain or to Greece. Those are the places that average Germans go on the holiday, and those are the places uh, that um, uh, you know public opinion really reacts to whether they are open, because uh, Germans much prefer uh, holidaying on the Mediterranean to holidaying on the uh, North Sea. Um, uh, when it comes to travel to the United States, that's more a question of facilitating business, um, some, some amount of student exchange, and so on and so forth. Um, nevertheless, I imagine that uh, uh, Angela Merkel and her team uh, rightly would like Europeans to be able to come to the United States, um, uh, given that a large number of Germans are vaccinated at this point. Uh, it doesn't seem as though uh, that would uh, uh, pose a risk to the American public um, uh, if people are duly vaccinated. And so I, I would imagine that uh, she raises that, uh, but probably is one of the many different issues uh, that is discussed. I, I wouldn't imagine that she would be uh, uh, wanting to turn this into the main question. Professor Mock, if we could turn around and go back to this comment you made about, you know, uh, Germany and maybe broadly Europe becoming sort of a, more in the neutrality section. I, I'm old enough to remember uh, the non-aligned nations and the struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and 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 what a disaster that was for for all involved. And uh, and yet we've seen enormous amount of pressure over the last few years on Europe to respond to China. Uh, the U.S. put a lot of pressure on them to not do business with Huawei, trying to facilitate a secure 5G. Uh, there's been enormous pressure to reform NATO. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. President began by expressing his condolences for the victims of the horrible flooding um, that have ki- killed dozens in Germany and Belgium, something that the chancellor, chancellor spoke at length about as well. He then also noted the historic nature of her leadership. She was the first or she is the first woman chancellor in history, second longest serving chancellor since Helmut Kohl. And then they talked about several of the issues that were raised during their meetings, which they described as productive everything from Nord Stream 2, which they talked a lot about, to their commitment to defending NATO allies against Russian aggression, to the creation of a partnership that they described as an energy and climate partnership. They talked about the creation also of a futures forum where they can collaborate as they shape a shared future. And of course, they talked about the pandemic. They ended by taking two questions each, including one from Bloomberg's Jennifer Leonard, who asked a really important question to the president about his issuing of a business advisory um, in terms of Hong Kong that's supposed to go out tomorrow, and then also about whether he believes that he can keep Mansion and Cinema on board for the $3.5 trillion deal. And the president said he is, quote, supremely confident that he can do that and believes he can get the deal done. So one of the issues that they talked about was they talked about the pandemic, as I mentioned. Um, And earlier today, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adimo told Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal that the Biden administration is trying to expand the United States post-pandemic economy by investing in infrastructure and investing in the American people with programs like the child tax credit, another thing that the president mentioned after he took Jennifer Leonard's question today. Take a listen. And the reality is that today, the families of 60 million children will receive the advanced child tax credit in their bank accounts. And what it's going to do for the economy and for those individuals is going to put parents in a position to invest in our future by investing in their children, by making sure they can pay for things like child care, helping them get clothes to go back to school, and we will dramatically reduce childhood poverty in our country. So obviously this is still a, a temporary program, but obviously it's the ambition of the White House to make this permanent. How would the economy look different were something like this to just be a permanent feature of the economic landscape? You know this well, Joe, but demographics are the key to any country's future. And the key for us is investing in our human capital and investing in our children. Making a program like this permanent, extending it, will mean that we're in a position to make sure that we're investing in children, ensuring that they're in a position to learn to have the resources they need to be productive contributors to society over time. Now, obviously, we're sort of in this era in which it feels like um, the political uh, motions are towards more comfort with things like sending out direct checks. And we saw that over a year ago when the crisis first hit. We've seen multiple rounds of checks. Now we see this. Nonetheless, there's still anxiety about the infrastructure of getting money out. Not everybody has a bank account. What should be done in terms of the investments to the infrastructure? We also saw it in the UI, for example. Not all the states were equipped. What should be done in terms of 
facilitating this so that in the future these kinds of things go more go, go more smoothly. So we're very impressed by how smoothly this has gone. Over 80% of the payments have actually went into bank accounts. And the other payments have actually been checks that have been sent out to the American people. Our goal is to make sure that people receive these payments on a regular basis on the 15th of each month in order to make sure that they can plan going forward. We've created childtaxcredit.gov. So if your banking information changes, you can update it there so that you can make sure that the money is getting to you so that you can plan for the future. We think the infrastructure is working well, and we look forward to making sure that more Americans have eligibility for this program. Now, let's pivot a little bit. Obviously, one of the economic stories of the moment has been the rise in headline inflation. And we tend to think of, okay, inflation is the Fed's job and it's part of their mandate. But when you look at some of the various components driving it, it's obviously, it's not obviously related to monetary policy and many of those things. Certain supply bottlenecks that we see, issues related to reopening, the chip shortage and the effect that that's having on used car prices. As the White House thinks about budgeting and spending, how much consciousness and thought is being put into easing supply side pressures such that we can have rapid growth without uh, running into these constraints and creating inflation? So Joe, we are mindful of all the risks, but it's important for us to remember where we are. A year ago, our economy was shut down in order to make sure that we could deal with COVID and the pandemic. Right. Over the course of the last several months, we've created more than 3 million jobs in the economy, and we still have a number of more jobs to create in order to make sure we get back to full employment. We always knew that as we opened up the economy, we would be in a place where demand outpaced supply in certain places, and we're seeing that. And we're seeing it in places like used cars right. and hotel rooms. And because we've lacked supply in some places, we've seen prices go up. And we think that this is temporary and transitory. But we're continuing to think about what we can do to make sure that we can grow the economy, invest in ways that create jobs, and make sure that we expand the potential of the economy going forward. Well, what does that look like specifically when you say we're thinking about um, the, the next round of investment planned for perhaps later in the year. What does that look like specifically to expand the potential supply side capacity of the economy? This comes down to investing in two areas. One is infrastructure, right. and the president's put out a plan, and we see the bipartisan group that's working on this. Investing in infrastructure will not only improve our economy in the near term, but it'll ensure that we expand potential in the economy over the long term and make the economy more competitive. The second part of that is investing in human capital, doing things like expanding the child tax credit in order to make sure that we're investing in our children and investing in our people in order to make sure that our economy is more competitive going forward. And that was Deputy Treasury uh, Secretary Wally Adimo speaking to Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal earlier today. And that Rick Davis is just about it for us. We want to thank Joe Matthew so much for letting us sit in while he's away. And we want to thank you for listening. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.